Hello and welcome to The Outer View with myself, Alan Swan, for RT Radio 1 Extra, a show all about the art of media interviewing, storytellers and the media in general. My guest today is Richard E. Grant, an actor you will know from films such as With an and I, Gosford Park, Dracula, The Iron Lady, and most recently in Logan. He is also a seasoned interviewer and most recently was seen in Sky Atlantic's Richard E. Grant's Hotel Secrets. I caught up with Richard recently in Dublin to discuss his interview technique. I've always been a very nosy parker, so I ask questions that maybe you're not supposed to ask. And I've found that if you're given, on the Hotel Secrets programme, for instance, I was given a huge amount of research about the person, but then no list of what I had to actually ask them, except for Donald Trump. And even when I interviewed him, I didn't stick to the questions that he had prescribed, which were 10 questions for 10 minutes. And I went completely off piece and asked him about his background and whether his German father and Scottish mother, this sort of combination of German and Calvinist Scots background had affected his sensibility and he said this is not one of the questions and I said yeah but I'm I, you know I'm not a chat show guy I want to know why you don't have children that are feral like Paris Hilton and uh, so then he started talking and once he started talking he was unstoppable so I found that even with with set questions with anybody that even on the Pen- Penguin podcast where you're interviewing authors and the the companies very specifically want you to follow a prescribed route for what is going to promote their latest novel from their point of view uh i know having done so many interviews you know the last 30 years myself that you get sick and tired of being asked to repeat the exact same thing so if somebody says something and you go off piste on that or you ask something that's maybe left a field of the thing that they're supposed to be talking about I've found almost without exception that people reveal things about themselves or their personality that isn't a standard stock question and answer. And so they become more lively. And then the interview has a much better chance of taking off. But of course, if you get the equivalent of a Robert De Niro, where they just, you know, you speak for 10 minutes like I've just done, and then they go, yes or no, then you're absolutely buggered. But... um, (laughs) And I think also speaking to people before you actually start doing the interview helps um, because if you appear, I th- hopefully, non-threatening and genuinely interested in what their life is or what they're promoting, then I think that, you know, it's, it's not rocket science. Because what I th- why I thought you'd make a fascinating guest is many of the people that have done this podcast with me are kind of seasoned um, you know, tabloid people or broadsheet or radio or TV. And what have they said? Well, their thing is is very. Uh, they go back to their training. So be it that they, you know, they trained as a journalist. And what, what I thought was very fascinating about you was you didn't train as a journalist. But what what did the training make them hone in on? Preparation, like the the the, the thing that comes in the most for for these interviews that I've done comes completely down to preparation that their research is meticulous to a point where they go in armed with an awful lot of questions they have a structure of where like you just said they, they have a like a PR company have a, pre, a kind of preconceived notion of where they want the conversation to go yeah. they believe they've got a preconceived notion of where they want the conversation to go and I think 
you're dead right uh, when you said that you have to be comfortable because if you meet a person, you're interviewing a person like this now, mm-hmm. because of the fact that I don't come from a journalist background, I hope that it's more of a natural conversation, that I'm just interested in you as a person and vice versa. Yeah. You might learn something about me by the end of this conversation. So why are you doing what you're doing? Because I'm fascinated by conversations. I'm fascinated about, about meeting people, learning their stories. And that's the podcast started off as a kind of a, a thing for students to learn how to do the perfect interview. Yeah. But the more I do these chats, the more it's turning into people. It, it comes down to people's stories. Because you, you leave the interview going, I didn't know that about them. Or I had this preconceived notion of the person I was going to interview. And by the end of it, I'm going... I wasn't expecting that, yeah. you know, and I think maybe that's the the joy of it. I think it's exact. I think you're absolutely bullseye accurate. But what I've found is that you can Google somebody, and you know everybody has some kind of presence, no matter who they are on the web. You can find out what they look like or something about them, but it still doesn't really prepare you for when you meet the person face to face and whatever mood they're in or what circumstance they're in is not going to be the Wikipedia version or the Facebook version of them. And that, to me, is you know, endlessly fascinating. Yeah, and I also find that the more I learn that the element of surprise is gone. <laughs> like, it's, it's now all algorithms with, if you like this, you might like that. Or if you, again, like you said, if you've read, if you've, you've gone the lazy route and you've gone the Wikipedia route and you haven't basically, like I interviewed in Barber, uh-huh. Um, about her kind of research techniques and she goes because of her era it was all newspaper clippings and conversations with friends of the people now she never went down the road of going through people's bins right um, she wasn't that type of a journalist but um, I just think that the, the element of surprise is gone and that you know long form the media has become such a kind of a quick soundbite Mm-hmm. We want the perfect little bit to fit our perfect little 30 seconds. And as somebody made a very good point to me, um, there's nobody doing these long form, staying with a subject for a week or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the old days of, say, if they did a kind of a piece on Frank Sinatra, yeah. where you had access for two weeks, but you basically were there for two weeks following this person, getting beautiful shots, photographs, and almost kind of like an anthology of that person's life for two weeks. And it gives you a good window into their into their life. Whereas now it's this kind of sanitized, well, you know, if Taylor Swift has been interviewed, and this is no offense to Taylor Swift, it's kind of, well, you can only ask these questions, you've got 10 minutes, and you don't get really any great surprise. And I just think that's terrible. That so what was Lynn Barber's secret? What did she reveal about how she did it? I just think that uh, as a female journalist mm-hmm. uh, during that era, that she was just, she didn't care what people thought, and she didn't want to be the subject's friend. Um, so I don't That's think she, so I don't think she was too afraid to ask a question that she believed was in and this opens up a whole other conversation whether a question warrants the public's attention should the public know X Y and Z I think from the conversation that I had with her she believed that everyone's an open book and you shouldn't hide anything now that yeah. comes with its own because problems. she interviewed me and she she told me I asked her whether she had how much of a preconceived notion influence what she then wrote she said 98 percent of it was preconceived and that meeting the person was just the two percent filler either way wow so in a sense it sounded like you didn't really stand a chance yeah <laughs> so if somebody's coming to decide that you are whatever then i don't know that you really but i suppose that's inevitable with, with everybody but i think that malcolm gladwell's book um, of essays blink in which the first one describes 
how you make a decision about another human being, good, bad, indifferent, or whatever, even if you subsequently change that, but your first 15 seconds are what make the biggest impression. Mm. And I think that's... That's pretty true. I've instantly now gone back to, I've retraced my steps walking into this hotel room. <laughs> and I've gone, I can see it. Rona's acting through your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I set up the laptop pretty quickly. I don't want to waste Richard's time. I think, I think we've done all right. Um, reading about you, and I didn't go down the Wikipedia route, there's, um, I'm fascinated by your, do you still journal and diary? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I thought that was a, a really... Because it seems to be in vogue now. Everyone seems to be doing the journaling thing at the moment. Uh-huh. There's a, a podcaster called Tim Ferriss and he's kind of made journaling a kind of a, a big thing again. But do you find that this has helped you in your career? What, what, what's, why did you decide to do it? Because when I was 10 years old, I, found, I inadvertently saw my mother shagging my father's best friend on the front seat of a car when I was supposed to be asleep in the back seat. And I tried confiding in God, and I got no reply. I obviously, for obvious reasons, couldn't tell my father, couldn't tell my school friends. So as a way of not feeling like I had gone completely round the bend, I, kept, I made a diary. Because I thought, well, if I've written it down, then somehow it's been witnessed. And it's not imagined. So um, that started the habit. And subsequently, when uh, I started working in films 30 years ago, uh, I was so, and I'm still so gobsmacked by the people and the places that I've gone to and I've met, that it's a way of, in much the same way that in the Hotel Secret series that I did for Sky Atlantic, jumping on beds and licking plates and somehow debunking the la-di-da of it all um, because I didn't grow up in this, you know, five-star finery that I often find myself in a work situation. And meeting the people that I've met, it's a way of, you know, because I still inside feel like I'm about, you know, a 14-year-old star-struck kid from Swaziland. So the people that I've met and where I've been... Even now, even though I'm 60, I still think I cannot quite believe that it's happened. So writing it down, again, is the exact same impulse as, you know, it's not as dramatic as it was when I was 10. But it's a way of going, this is recording who I've met, what I've heard, and what I've seen, because you forget stuff. And, you know, if I look look at something from two weeks ago, five days ago, 10 years ago, um, you go, oh, my God, I met... And on that day, and then we did this, and he told me that, and blah, blah. So if you're hyper-curious, then it's a, it's a way of, I don't know, I suppose recording your experience of your life from the, from the standpoint of thinking, has this actually happened to me? Because that word you just said there, curious, yeah. is the second most quoted word. Um, in the series that we've done. So preparation will be one, and you strike me as a very meticulous person, but but um, that word curious keeps coming up, that people that do this job for a living, that, that have conversations with people, that meet people, are, are nosy um, yeah. and very, very curious about how the world works. It depends what kind of curiosity you have as well. I think that if you are, and you know more than I do, that there are journalists whose raison d'etre is to get either expose the person or very often I get get a sense that 
you're being amateur psychoanalyzed with the intention of character assassination in some mm. sense. And I can see that, you know, anybody who sticks their head up above the parapet and says, you know, I'm an actor, a dancer, a writer, whatever, whatever they are in any kind of art form, uh, you're, uh, you're, you're inviting somebody to take a pot shot at you. So that just goes with the territory. But at the same time, you read about people who have either ended their lives or ended up in destitution or whatever, and the very critics that have damned those people have then come around and said, well, you know, they really were good or they were great or, you know, maybe we should have given them more credence in their time. So um, that sticks in my craw. But, but, you know, you have to strike a happy medium between uh, an assassination skewer fest, and I've had some of those, or kind of puff piece, which is, you know, nauseating in its own, its own way. So I, I think the most effective thing that I was obsessed with when I was a teenager was Andy Warhol's interview magazine where it would say Alan and Richard meet at 3.15 in the Marion Hotel um, it was a cloudy day outside it was 17 degrees and they had half an hour together he was dressed description of how you are how I am this is the question he asked and this is the answer that, that person gave and I think that is the the most present sense that you get of you are then allowed to, to judge what the questioner is asking and what the respondee has, has come up with. Otherwise, you're going to be getting the 95% preconceived three paragraphs of psychobabble about the person and then very edited clips of what they have said that then fit that um, yeah, storyline. Because in in this sense, this is this is taped, so at least the, there is an actual historical log of the conversation. But I have to agree with you that, that the purest sense of print yeah. is that what you just said was, which is that description based Q and A led type type questioning. I just want to go back to 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 when you started off, and it's kind of usually when I do these conversations, like when you started off in your journalistic or media career. Do you actually remember the first time you conducted an interview? Because that must have been a strange sensation for yeah, you. Yeah, Elle magazine um, for Lisa Armstrong in 1986, before um, Withnail got released. I wow. remember. I remember that being taken and dressed in clothes that I didn't own um, for a photo shoot, and styled by somebody who said, "Your hair should be like this. Your clothes should be like that." And I couldn't recognize. Well, obviously, I could recognize, but the whole thing that they had put me in was nothing that I would ever have chosen for myself. So you're, you're sort of a guinea pig to somebody else's idea of how they think Alan should be dressed, mm. and boom, boom. And you go, what the fuck am I doing this for? Yeah. Um, so it was a lesson in going, if you're doing something that's purely for a fashion magazine, which I've done very few and far between of, then you know at the outset that that's what it is. But when I look back on it now, of reading what this person wrote... And then seeing the pictures, I, it filled me with acute embarrassment because I thought the images <laughs> seemed so at odds with how I felt and what I was, you know, experiencing being in a film for the first time in my life. Well, Richard, you're looking very sharp today, so if we can give it a, we'll, we'll take a picture. <laughs> I'm speaking to 1,400 <laughs> women tonight about starting a business. Oh, well, look, well, that's why you're looking sharp then. Yeah. So. Um, do you remember 
the first time that you conducted an interview, that you were the other side of the mic? Because now we look back on the Hotels uh, series. the, the oh, School Magazine. Pod- what was it? A School Magazine. Really? Yeah. I interviewed people for the School Magazine where I went to school in Swaziland, so that would have been 1973. And do you, can you even think back to what the questions were? Did you, did you put much preparation into it? Uh, no, because everybody knew everybody. The school was a small school of 300 people, so it was... You know, tongue in cheeky. So that's you know, it was about a school play and who was in it and what we were all doing and what what part they were playing and you know what they brought to the part and all this stuff. You know, trying to be trying to be sophisticated and grown up and of course being completely adolescent. Is there anybody in this mad business that you think really gets it as a journalist or a writer or, or a broadcaster that can listen the best out of people? Uh, Even somebody that you might like as a fan, that you love enjoying their show. I think that the the person who I've enjoyed most watching on YouTube more than anybody else was the American guy who worked in the 60s and 70s. And my brain right now, I'm going to have to look him up. Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett. Because he had an hour-long show. He clearly had an enormous intellect. Uh, great curiosity and a real wry sense of humour and irony. And I always feel when watching his interviews that he wanted the person who was being interviewed to be the best of themselves. And I think that's, you know... Would you believe, actually, Ryan Torberty, who presents The Late Late Show? Yes, I've been on a show. You've been on a show before. Uh, he's been a guest on this podcast, named Dick as his choice oh, as well. He? Yeah, so yeah. he's come up quite a lot in these conversations. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that um, uh, Graham Norton on a Friday night, does that show here? Yes. Oh, it does. Yeah, I think he's, you know, there's, there's nobody who is doing what he does, that he is so relaxed with the guests and he gets a combination of people on a sofa that... Even though you know it's it's prescribed by people having a set of anecdotes that that conform to something that is a common denominator of the theme of or of the the guests that are on that week, but he somehow transcends all of that and he's just as, as fast as a whip because on paper it shouldn't work if you if you were to write down the format of that show and the guests and the mix of guests that he has on it yeah. uh, you you kind of say to yourself that's not going to work exactly but he is a special talent but he's always got that you know he's got the red chair at the end and that that in itself is a way of debunking the whole lot of it there's and a, i love that there's a, a, a genius story about how that all came about they didn't know how to end the show Oh, really? On a natural point. And right. some, one of the producers said, why don't we have a chair at the end so we know that we get to the end of the programme, it's always the red chair, we throw some people off the end of it, and we all say goodnight. And they went, okay, let's try it out. And that's, that's right. uh, where the red chair came from. With Dame Edna, in her shows, used to have an ejector seat or a trap door, and a guest would come out onto the balcony at the beginning. And if, he, if she thought that they weren't worthy enough, she'd just... They'd be trapdoored out of sight. Listen, that's a great idea for, for the late, late, late Late Show. If Ryan yeah. Torbury's listening back to this podcast, Ryan, there is an idea. Because there is a balcony now in the Late Late Show where the house band is, so that would be one idea. And the Jeffrey Seacombe, another great idea. Exactly. Um, last couple of questions, and Richard, thank you so much for yeah, your time. Not at all, thank you. Um, what's also very interesting about your career, a lot of people who 
students who listen to this consider themselves multi-hyphenated, that they're going into a career of media where they don't just want to be uh, a radio broadcaster. They'd mm-hmm. like to be a writer, a podcaster, a YouTuber. They'd like to do some acting. They'd like to maybe paint. They'd like, to, And you strike me as a person that, that, that has done that throughout your career. You haven't just stuck to one part of the arts you've you've tried the different things and no more so than now your own perfume range which which is incredible and we'll get to that in a second do, do you find it difficult to juggle all these talents um well thank you that you put it like that it, what it feels like is just never being i'm very restless and curious by nature so if i'm not doing one thing then i'll be be doing another so being single-minded and only pursuing one thing, uh, maybe I should have done that. And maybe I'd be doing better than I am if I just stuck to, you know, going, I'm just going to do this, you know, one one type of thing. But I think the reality is that there are very few people that succeed at a high level just doing that all the time. Do you worry about regrets? Uh, cue my way. Um, <laughs> no. I'm so I'm, I've outlived my father now by eight years. He died when he was fifty-two. So every year to me is a bonus, and you only have one crack at it. So you know, my feeling is go for it. And my nature is glass three quarters full rather than the other way around. Um, so I just got used to the troughs of what happened to you are easier to surf through than. They used to be 10 or 20 years ago when I used to get, oh, my God, I'm never going to work again. Oh, this is a disaster. All of that. You, and that's just, a, that's just a matter of age and experience. Because the and life having of an, some money. <laughs> yeah, because the life of an actor really is, there is moments of, of unemployment. I don't know what the statistic is, but like it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a very difficult It's profession. really, really bad, yeah. Um, so you must have, like any actor, a lot of time to think during those periods. And maybe you do. too much time to think. Yes, I suppose so. But um, yeah, I suppose you can go completely around the bend. But you know, at the same time, it gives you the luxury of being able to read and go and see things and travel and do things. And so, I never think of it as as a negative. No, never. Yeah, no. Final question, and this brings us back to Jack, okay. which, which is your your perfume. Yeah. Um, and what I love about this is, and, I know, and and it's something that I'm very I'm fascinated by that you can change the course of of your career or your life in a different direction no matter what age you are I'm thinking of writing I'm 38 and I'm yeah. thinking of writing a book called 38 Not Late Not Too Late because um, I've had I have two children now I have a little nine month old called Seth oh yeah lucky. and I have a three year old called Serena and they've completely done a 360 in my mind of of you know it's not too late you can do yeah. different things absolutely you know, where I thought well, well the course of my career is going this way and they've kind of opened up my eyes to kind of like you know what you've plenty more time here to to do other stuff so why not do other stuff because the worst you can you can just fail yeah you know as painful as that is you can just fail because it brings me to fear so when you decided because you had a love it wasn't some sort of um i'm going to put my my name to somebody else's product i'm actually going to create this perfume myself bespoke Uh from the very very beginning um were you frightened this was all because this was your money you were pumping into this oh yeah i was frightened you're a woman band by your daughter who's your accountant uh yeah she 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 works with me part-time um yeah i mean every single person that i spoke to in the perfume industry said you will lose your shirt do not do it there are 1200 cents um launched every year 
you, you understand a hope in hell. But I think that because I've been an actor for so long and you're, you become inured to people saying, no, 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 you can't. You'll never succeed. No, no, no. I thought, well, you know, what's the worst? I can lose some money. I don't want to lose money, but that also drives you and is the engine to try and make the thing succeed. So I've been in business now for four years and it's stayed in profit. My guest in conversation, Richard E. Grant, the outer view on RTE Radio 1 Extra. To find out more, go to alanswan.com.